Hey, thank you so much for, uh, hey, guys, how are y'all? Y'all ready to study the Word? You can't sleep when you stumble up this close. If you doze off, then I'll, I'll see you. So, um, hey, God bless y'all. I'm, I'm glad, that, uh, glad that you're here. I'm glad to pastor a multi-generational church. I love having 80-year-olds and 18-year-olds in the same building. Do you know what um, an ecclesiological anomaly that is in America today? We are very uh, segregated at 11 o'clock, um, most of our churches in America, because we put the old folks over there, and that's kind of where I'm going. I'm, you know, I'll be almost 51 here, and then put the younger people over here. But isn't it cool? I, I love Felix Daly. Where, where is Felix Daly? Is he in here? Felix, I want you to come up here for just a minute, all right? I need you, I need you to come up here for just a minute, because I want to I talk about you. Ken, would you bring me that microphone? I want to I do something totally unplanned, impromptu. I'm getting ready for tonight. How's that? Felix, why don't you stand up here with me, all right? He's a good man. 86? 87. 86. 86 years young. All right. 87, September 1. I love Felix Daly. Um, I meet with him every Sunday morning with a group of men, and we pray together. And I love to hear Felix pray. And I want to let y'all have the opportunity to hear this man of God. Just pray. Pray for us. Just pray like we're praying in the back, back there. And just pray whatever the Lord puts on your heart. And... Um, I just got a lot of respect for you. Um, I remember a statement Felix made. Um, it's about three or four years ago in some, some hard times in our church when somebody asked Felix, do you like all that music they sing at that church? He says, well, not really. He said, I don't like all of it. He said, but when I see my 18-year-old with her hands raised, worshiping Jesus, he said, I'm okay. <laughs> he said, I'm okay. Thank you. Why don't you pray for us? Pray for these young people. Pray for me as we preach the word today, okay? Go ahead. Father, first I want to thank you for sending us Danny Forshee, a godly man, a man anointed by you to preach the word. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for every difficulty that we've had. I thank you for every opportunity we've had to be used of you to work our way through these difficult times. And Lord, I thank you for this wonderful privilege that's mine mm-hmm. to participate once more in a, in a giving situation to where we can give even more to your kingdom, to this church. And God, I thank you that, God, that we are being led as a church, not only in this community and in this area here, but throughout Texas and the United States and across the world. Yes. God, thank you so much for that. And Lord, I thank you that you're raising up within our midst young people, teenagers who are sold out and committed to you. Thank you for them. Thank Thank you for their parents. God, bless them. Let your Holy Spirit empower them and bless them and use them, God, in a mighty way. That's the greatest privilege we have on this earth is to be touched by you and used by you. Thank you, Father, and bless this service tonight as we come together to praise you and bless you. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless us as a congregation, and God, mostly we need to be blessed as individuals, that we will see the opportunities to give of our finances, of our time, of our effort, and of our love back to you through this church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. I love you, man. Appreciate it. 
All right. I also want to thank you, church family. Many of you have asked me, and uh, I've got great news for you. My dear wife, at this time, is not going to need uh, surgery on her knees, so we praise the Lord for that. Amen. She's been running around the house chasing us just like always, you know, and getting after us, but... Hey, I failed to mention, guest, if you would, take a moment before you leave today. We'd love, it says here we want to get to know you. We'd love for you to fill this out and at the end of the service in the great hall area. My wife and I will, are you going to come back there today? You feel up to it? Okay, great. She'll come hobbling back there with me and we'd love to meet you. And in exchange for your registration, I'll give you one of the books that I've, that I've written on the book of Revelation. And so if you would come at the end of the service, that would be fantastic. So today we are in Revelation chapter 18. And today's text is a lengthy one, verses 9 through uh, 24 through the remainder of chapter 18. And so if you're just now new to Great Hills or or new to this study of the apocalypse, we're glad that you're here. This has been a very lengthy study for us, well over a year and a half. We've been studying uh, Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of the end times. Eschatology is a wonderful study. It's a study of the eschaton. Eschaton in Greek simply means the last days or the end of the age. And so what a privilege it is. Aren't, you know, I, I tell you, just welling up within me this morning, I've got this tremendous sense of this resolute peace that the God who created everything, the God who knows everything, is the God that's in control, and He will consummate everything. And so really, there is no worry. There is no fear. There is no anxiety. There really even shouldn't be any concern on our part. If our God is all that He says that He is, that means He created it. He sustains it. He is a providential, awesome, amazing, omnipotent God. And if, mm, listen now, if He can do all of this, if He can create the world, maintain the world, and conclude the world, Can He not take care of your world today? Whatever you're dealing with, marriage, finances, job, stress, difficulty, whatever it is, our God can handle it. In fact, with that in mind, I I want to begin my message today with something I came across that is just absolutely inspiring. And I want you to be encouraged by what I'm going to read to you because a lot of times, especially as we're looking at the, the gloom and the dirge, the funeral of the world as we know it, because there's coming a day when things are going to get even worse than they are today. They're going to get worse. There's going to be an antichrist. There's going to be a one-world religion, a one-world government. And we're, we're marching toward those days, and it doesn't take uh, hardly any creativity theologically to see that because we just see ourselves marching toward that day. However, in the midst of that, I want you to be encouraged to know that God is always in control. Listen to this. It's very good. God always has His people, and God always triumphs. Paul Harvey, anybody remember Paul Harvey? You remember the two things he he used to say? He would say things like, good day, and the rest of the story. He died in 2009, just a few years ago, at the age of 90. One of his broadcasts, and by the way, for some of our younger generation don't know Paul Harvey, he was a great... Uh, really American icon. He was uh, a radio personality, and he was very, he he had this rich, baritone, great voice, but the substance of the things he shared were so inspiring. He he took us back in a a time where where life was a little more simple, and uh, it's just a sweet sweet thought that he had that I want to share with you. In fact, it's a quote from a man by the name of Lee Pitts, and the title of this little expose is called The Things that I wish for you. I want you to listen to this. 
I really hope nobody gives you a brand new car when you are 16. It will be good if at least one time you can see puppies born and your old dog put to sleep. I hope you get a black eye for fighting for something you believe in. I hope you have to share a bedroom with your younger brother. And if it's all right with you, uh, when he gets scared, he can crawl under the covers and sleep with you. I hope you have to walk uphill to school with your friends and that you live in a town where you can do that safely. On rainy days when you have to catch a ride, I hope you don't ask your driver to drop you two blocks away so that you will not be seen riding with someone as uncool as your mother. If you want a slingshot, I hope your dad teaches you how to make one instead of buying you one. I hope you learn to dig in the dirt and read books. When you learn to use computers, I hope you also learn to add and subtract in your mind, in your head. I hope you get teased by your friends when you have your first crush on a girl. And when you talk back to your mom that you learn what ivory soap tastes like. <laughs> May you skin your knee climbing a mountain, burn your hand on a stove, and stick your tongue on a frozen flagpole. <laughs> I don't care if you try beer once, but I hope you don't like it. And if a friend offers you marijuana, I hope you realize he's not really your friend. I sure hope... Why I'm just emotional on this, but I sure hope that you talk to your grandpa and you go fishing at least one time with your uncle. May you feel sorrow at a funeral and joy during the holidays. I hope your mother punishes you when you throw a baseball through your neighbor's window and that she hugs you and kisses you at Christmas. And when you give her a plaster mold of your hand, oh, what a joy. These things I wish for you, tough times and disappointment, hard work and happiness. To me, it's the only way to live. It's the only way to appreciate life. And then Paul Harvey, quoting Lee Pitts, literally closes this speech with these words, quotes directly from the Word of God, when it says, Do not remove the ancient boundary stone. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Then he prays this prayer on air. Listen to these words. Lord Jesus, recognizing the fact that we are living in increasingly godless times. Isn't that the truth? In fact, God, we are living in increasingly godless times. But please grant me wisdom and the will to raise my children on a biblical foundation in such a manner that they will not only be equipped, but they will also be desirous of following Jesus Christ in such a world, end of quote. When I read that, I thought, you know... There is still good, and there is still this wholesome biblical ethic that we get to enjoy, at least in our culture. And I know times are bad, and I know they're even going to get worse, but I just wanted you to steal with me away for just a moment. And just remember that Jesus is still in control. And yes, times are hard, but even in the midst of tough times, God still prevails and God still wins. In Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we read about this this code word called Babylon. And, and I'm going to recapitulate, just summarize with you briefly what I believe Babylon is or what it will be. Now, I know there are some who believe metaphorically that Babylon just represents all of that which is in opposition to God. Anything that is antithetical to God is Babylon. And I don't dismiss that. I, I don't agree with it completely, but I, I see Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 as something more than a metaphor, okay? Some people say, well, yeah, I see Babylon, but it also, it has more to do with historical Babylon of the 6th century 
And Isaiah and Jeremiah talked about that. And so Babylon, to me, is something in the past, and I respect that, though I don't completely agree with it. I think Babylon, in Revelation 17 and 18, has three entities to it, three attributes or characteristics. You may want to jot these down. We've given you a sheet of paper there. We've given you a lot of notes today. We're going to share a lot of information with you today. I hope you're you're ready. I hope your heart's ready. I hope your mind is ready to receive the Word of God, the teaching of the sacred scriptures. The first thing Babylon represents is a literal uh, geographical city that's going to be rebuilt somewhere in the Middle East. I believe it could very well be in modern-day Middle East in Babylon on the Euphrates River in the country of Iraq. Now, a number of years ago, if I were to hold that position and make that publicly, I might get laughed at, but people don't laugh at that anymore. Because anytime you turn your television on, anytime you look at the internet, there's something going on in Iraq. Today, it has to do with ISIS and persecution of anyone that disagrees with them. So it's not such a far-fetched idea that Revelation 17 and 18 deals with a geographical city to be rebuilt in the future. Number two, in Revelation 17, we talk a lot about what I think is a religious Babylon, an apostate religion. An amalgamation, a combination of of the syncretism of our day, which means you pick and choose a little bit of all the religions, amalgamate them, put them into one, and you've got one great world religion where everybody's happy and everybody is tolerated except one group, and that is a biblical Christianity. And that is Revelation 17, referred to as the prostitute, the great harlot of Babylon. We've already studied that. So let me go to number three. The third component or dimension of Babylon that I believe in Revelation 18, what we'll study today, is a more social, political, economic, commercial, socio-economic Babylon, if you will. A one-world government with a one-world leader by the name of the Antichrist. And he will lead, he will, he will do away with the one-world religion because he doesn't want anybody worshiping anything but him because he has this gargantuan ego, and he wants everybody to worship him, and he's going to rule the day from Babylon until Revelation 18. And we get to read today what God's going to do to Babylon, and it ain't pretty. But God is a God of justice. He is a God of judgment. Yes, he's a God of compassion and love, and I don't discount that, and I'm grateful to God. Listen, if you ever think God is all justice and God is all judgment, then open your Bibles and read John 3, 16. For God so loved this world that He gave His Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But Revelation 17 and 18 deals with this Babylon that is coming and the God who will judge it powerfully. So I'm going to read Revelation chapter 18. I'll begin in verse 19. It's a lengthy passage of Scripture. And so I want you to listen carefully. And I want you to stand up where you're seated. And I want us to honor God by reading the Word of God, standing up. And we're going to read it. It's going to take me a few minutes, and I want you to go ahead and stand. We don't do this every Sunday. I know some of you wish I would because you tell me that, and that's okay. Uh, Why don't we stand every Sunday? Well, we'll stand when I feel like we need to stand. So we're going to stand, and we're going to read Revelation 18. I'm going to read verses 9 through 24. And if you're listening, and you're happy, and you're ready, say amen. amen. Okay, good. Here we go. Here we go. The kings of the earth who committed porneus... It's a Greek word where we get words like pornography. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality, fornication, and lived luxuriously with her, with Babylon, will weep, and they will lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. 
standing at a distance for fear of her torment, and they say, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and, and, look at this church, and the bodies and the souls of men. That has to do with slavery, human sex trafficking. You, you realize today there are more slaves than we ever imagined in the 19th century in the world. There are more slaves today than ever in the history of the antiquity of mankind. And by the way, there is slavery, sexual human trafficking going on in the great state of Texas, and a lot happens in the city of Austin. Young girls taken captive to do men's bidding and to receive their pay. The fruit of, that you long for, by the way, this word fruit in verse 14 is not the, the same word for apples and oranges. It, it has that connotation of your desire. The desire that you long for has gone from you. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The strongest way to make a negation in the Greek New Testament is right there at the end of verse 14. You can translate it in absolutely, unequivocally, no way at all. It's a good translation. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. And they will say, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance, and they cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, and they said, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads, and they cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. I've entitled verses 9 through 19 a word about remorse. In verse 20 is the word rejoice. Verse 20 says, but rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles, some translations read saints, and you holy saints, apostles, and prophets, rejoice, by the way, that's in the, an imperative command in the Greek New Testament. I give you the command rejoice because God has judged her. God has avenged you on her. Thirdly is the word of retribution, verses 21 through 24. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and he threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, trumpeteers shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. Hoti, 
Hoti in verse 23 is an interesting word. It's a, it's a good translation to say because. He's about to enter a causal clause. All of these things are going to be taken away from you because, and he gives three reasons why. Your merchants, first of all. Your merchants were the great men of the earth. Number two, because of your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. Leave verse 23 up there for just a minute. Do you see the word sorcery? That, that is the Greek word pharmakia. It's where we get our English word pharmaceutical or pharmacy. And it has to do with this combination, this wicked combination of witchcraft and drug abuse. That's what that word means. Witchcraft, sorcery, seances, Ouija board, that kind of stuff, commingled with drugs. And so you have deceived the world, and all the nations were deceived. And finally, verse 24, and in her, the third reason why there's judgment, is there was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. May God bless us as we study His Word this morning. You may be seated. Uh, don't, don't be too alarmed. I'm not going to go through every verse and analyze every word. Of course, we would be here till 6 o'clock, amen? It would take us a long time, but we're not going to do that. We are going to go quickly, though, and look at this passage of Scripture, and I do encourage you to get your outlines, uh, to get your sheet of paper. You may want to jot some of these things down. For example, number one is the word remorse. There are three groups who are going to mourn, weep, and wail over the demise and the destruction of this commercial, political, socio-economic Babylon. The first group, you can write in your blank there, is the word leaders. This would be the kings of the earth, leaders, powerful politicians, ruling monarchs because they had committed porneus. They had committed fornication with this superstructure of Babylon. We talked about this last week. Babylon in return of the merchants doing business with her, the kings of the world and the sailors of the world, she would provide this protection and they would give her favored treatment. They would probably to the neglect of their own countries, their own kingdoms, would give preferential treatment to this, this prostitute, if you will, and in return she would deliver her protection. So, the first group that wails and is devastated over her demise would be these leaders, the kings of the earth. Number two would be the merchants, or be the merchants. This would be the key businessmen, the entrepreneurs of the world. One writer says, Babylon is the epitome of luxury. And now that she's gone, no one remained to buy her commodities. In verses 12 through 13, there's a list of all of these commodities, these uh, blessings that she provided for her takers. Um, John Phillips writes these words. He says, quote, what a catalog of opulence. What a vivid picture of a great commercial city trafficking every luxury that the heart could desire. It offered articles of adornment and display, beautiful things to grace their mansions. It deals in exotic spices and perfumes and delicacies for the table and provisions for banquets in slaves and the souls of men. And Babylon imported all of these things. Yes, Babylon's demand for this world's goods was insatiable. Ever it clamored for more and more, end of quote. Some of the things that of the 28 items that are listed in our text are things like precious jewels, precious stones. Number two would be purple. Did you see that? Early on, it mentions that purple was something 
to be almost coveted over. And what, what it's talking about there is this dye, this purple color of dye that was embedded in the clothing, and it, and it represents opulence and lavishness and really a, a kind of an over-the-top. Another is the word citron. Did you see that? A citron or thion wood in verse 12. This would be a sweet-smelling North African citrus tree. Now listen to this. It was known for its exotic coloring. One writer says its use was in costly doors and dining tables, and it had the colors of the stripes of a tiger and the spots of a panther. In other words, exotic, exorbitant, luxurious, and this was the commercial Babylon. It mentions in verse 13, cinnamon. Now that would be a substance taken from barks of a tree like they have in East Asia or South China. And this they would use too. The Romans used it for incense, medicine, used it for perfume and in their wines. Another thing that they mourned over and wept over her demise and her destruction, these kings of the earth, these merchants of the world. Another thing they were all upset about is, oh, our our chariots are gone. And then our slaves and our souls of men, they've all been decimated. And in verse 14, we talked about the material, the fruit that has been taken from them. Opulence, wealth, greed over the top. It it reminds me of a couple of people. It reminds me of Donald Trump. It does. It reminds me of John D. Rockefeller. And I'm not an expert on either one of these men. I have read their biographies. That doesn't make me an expert, but it does give me an appreciation of of greed, of the dangers of of greed. John D. Rockefeller was a multi-billionaire at the turn of the 20th century. You're talking about, you think Walmart has a monopoly. Let me tell you about Standard Oil. They had this, I mean, dominating monopoly all over the world through these refineries as everybody now was getting in their cars. And John D. Rockefeller would go to his Baptist church on Sunday and sing hymns and then go Monday and be the most ruthless businessman known to men. Donald Trump. I read his book a number of years ago and it's called How to Get Rich. You say, Pastor, why in the world would a pastor read a book on how to get rich? Well, I promise you it was not to learn how to be wealthy. It was to learn about the man. In 2004, the fourth section of his book, the subtitle reads, Money, 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 Money. He has a whole chapter on revenge in his book. And as he was talking about this in his book, he, and you can read it for yourself, he says, Brother Dan, it doesn't sound like you're going to vote for Donald Trump. Well, I'm just saying, I, I, when I think about this Babylon, I think about this kind of mentality. And he was speaking about revenge, and he says, you absolutely must get even with your enemies. And one, there was a group of priests in the room, and, and one of the priests said, sir, we, we thought better of you. And Donald Trump said these words, and I want to read his words. This is a quote from him. He said, Father, I have great respect for you. You'll go to heaven. I'm probably not. But to be honest, as long as we're on earth, I really have to live by my own principles. Greed opulence, thirsting for more and more and more, I tell you, it's going to make Donald Trump look minuscule. When Babylon comes and the merchants of the world, the kings of the earth, they come together and they see this great commercial entity and they see the judgment of God on it, and I tell you, they wail and they weep. 
There's another group that I want you to look at real quickly, and it's called the Mariners. Yeah, the Seattle Mariners. It would be the shipping industry, the sailors who trafficked on the sea, and man, they are just devastated because their shipping industry now has lost because there's nothing to take their wares. There's nowhere to put their merchandise because Babylon now is destroyed. Um, but before I make that statement, let me say this about Donald Trump. I am encouraged by something I did read recently about him. Not the fact that he said, I have never asked for forgiveness of sins. I find that very disturbing. But then he said this, but I love God, I love my Presbyterian church, and when I take Holy Communion, I do feel as if God forgives me and cleanses me of my sins, which I thought that was interesting just for the record. Have you ever been preaching and have like 20 thoughts go through your head at once? I'm having one of those moments, and I'm trying to look at the time and be sensitive to the time. You know, you can tell a lot about a man or a woman when they weep. What do they weep over? The merchants, the sailors, the kings of the earth, they are weeping, they are wailing. Did you read that part where it says they throw dust on their heads? This is a demonstrative act of grief because that which they worshipped is now in demise. And by the way, let, let me just say this to you. There's absolutely nothing wrong, I think, with having money and wealth and influence. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. What's wrong with it is if you worship it. What's wrong with it, if instead of you controlling it, it controls you. Some of the most godly people I know are people of means, people of wealth, people of economy, and they also take that wealth and economy and means, and they leverage it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's not what we're talking about here. This is not what these people believe in. These, these are people who are lusting after more, 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 and more so that they could spend it on themselves, and, and that has nothing to do with benefiting and blessing the kingdom of God. You can tell a lot about a person by, what, by the way they weep. Did y'all ever, did, have you ever seen such weeping as recently over Cecil the lion? Would somebody please help me? I mean, if, if I see one more... Liberal media person weeping on air. Cecil the lion is dead, and and oh my word. And have y'all seen the little comedic satire with the three zebras saying, Cecil the lion is dead? Yay, Cecil the lion. I like that. (laughs) Kind of like that. But there was very little outrage and weeping over Planned Parenthood, butchering and selling the body parts of human beings. There's very little outcry and weeping over that, but oh my word, do you think Cecil the Lion had created the world? You can tell a lot about a man by what he weeps over. Okay, so that's the demise and the destruction. the dirge, if you will, the remorse. Number two is the rejoicing. It's interesting that there is a command in verse 19 that says, Rejoice over her that has fallen. And the people who are to rejoice are the holy saints, the prophets, the people of God, because now God has brought her to, to judgment. And it's interesting that, um, that this, is, this command in verse 20 is given right, into the, right in the heart, right in the midst of all this, all this 
you know, death and destruction that the angel of God says, but people of God rejoice because evil has met her day and she has fallen. I love, I thought about this verse in Isaiah 520 where it says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We, we live in a very inverted, truncated, twisted society where many and most in the world view evil as it's good and they view that which is good as if it is evil. And Babylon, I believe, epitomizes this and God is about to judge her. Now, here's a thought I had and I really want you to hear my heart on what I'm about to say. Since we know that this is the truth, what will we do about it? If, if, if it is true that God will judge, God will judge the Babylons of this world, all of that which is defiant, in opposition to Him, that is arrogant, that's greedy, that's lustful, that looks upon good as evil and evil as good, if we know that God will judge and God will make it right, what does that do to you? What, how, how does that impact you? How does it impact me? It should do two things. Number one, it should give us confidence. And number two, it should give us compassion. It should give us confidence knowing that God will win no matter how difficult the day is. God will come through. He will save the day. But secondly, it should give us compassion. I, I think about Penn Jillette's quote. You know, the famous atheist who has his show there, the Penn Jillette show there in the Vegas. And he said, how much do you have to hate me not to witness to me? As an evangelical Christian, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share the gospel with them? That's, this is what it does to me. When I read that, it gives me even greater compassion and love for those who, who don't know Christ. It makes me want to share, <laughs> makes me want to share with everybody. I bit into a sausage biscuit yesterday. Thank you, Ashley. And I, I heard this crunch, and uh, man, my tooth just broke, and it just fell off. And when you got porcelain veneers and your teeth fall out, it's not pretty, okay? I mean, you've got, um, it's, it's really not pretty. I'm just looking at this, I'm going, there's no way I'm going to go stand before people tomorrow with a hole in my, in my head, you know? So I said, I've got to go to the dentist. So I called the dentist. She met me up there at the dentist office with her kids, and I had an opportunity to talk to her about the Lord, about the things of God. You say, why in the world would you do that? Why in the world would I not do that? If this book is true, and God is who He says He is, and there is a heaven up above, and there is a hell below, and, and God is going to judge those who don't know Him, how dare we not at least say the word, speak the word, invite people to Christ, invite them to our church. So, oh, okay. There's, I know, I'm trying to process all this. I got, I got a whole other story. Maybe I'll tell it at another time. Okay, number three is retribution. And this is the word, it's a big fancy word for judgment. In the remaining passages of Scripture, in verses 20 through 24, you see the retribution of God, the judgment of God, and, and he, he signifies it with this mighty angel. Do you say, Brother Danny, you believe this is a real angel? I do. Do you believe it's, it's a millstone? It may be. It says it's like a millstone. Now picture this. Now John sees this vision of this mighty, majestic angel, and he picks up this, this huge millstone. And now, by the way, it's not one of these little millstones that you use to grind the wheat. It would be four to five feet in size, and, 
and, and it would be tons, literally thousands of pounds, donkeys would have to pull this kind of millstone. And that was very common in that day. But you have this angel holding up this millstone, and he just throws it into the sea. Can you, can you, in your mind's eye, can you see the, and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and its significance is not lost on the reader. Just as that millstone was plummeted into the sea, sunk to rise no more, so Babylon. And all of that which is in opposition to God will sink and rise no more. I like what Pastor Adrian Rogers said at this point. He, he says, how is all this going to go down? If this book is a book about the future, then how will Babylon be destroyed? He said it could be an atomic blast. And those who see the mushroom cloud from a distance will fear the radiation that emanates from it and they will keep their distance. And that's how he reads Revelation 18, that all these mariners and these merchants and these monarchs, they're, they're looking from a distance going, we're not getting anywhere near that because it has been atomic blast never to rise. You say, now please tell me, Brother Danny, again, why would God judge these people? Why would God judge the capital of Panem? I mean, why is judgment coming? And there are three reasons, and I close with this. Number one, it says because of the merchants, because of these businessmen, these guys are lusting for more and more. Listen, they're trafficking the souls of men. They're abusing the bodies of women. They do not care as long as they get what they want, and they satisfy every modicum of fleshly lust, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, lust of the heart, pride of life, and they, it has this insatiable desire, and they don't care who says what, they don't care what God says, they don't care what the law says, they want what they want, and God, you just take it and forget it, I'm going to do what I want to do, God, I don't care what you say, and God says, I will judge that, and God will judge that. I feel like a little John the Baptist crying in the wilderness sometimes. It's just not, are we reading the same Bible? I mean, is, is God really going to judge? What? Well, yes, He is. Well, why? Because people hate Him, and they despise Him, and they love their darkness more than they love the light. Number two, they're going to be judged because of this pharmakia, this sorcery, this commingled with drug abuse and the deception. And then thirdly, she will be judged, and watch this, because she murdered the people of God. And God vindicates the blood of His people, and He annihilates the perpetuator of this crime. One writer put it this way, he said, Satan, he sails on a sinking ship. His doom is announced, and it will be carried out. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to write these words down. Sin cannot win, and faith cannot fail. Sin cannot win, and faith cannot fail. If you love Babylon, you are following a lost cause. Babylon will be destroyed by a devastating collapse. It will happen cataclysmically fast. In an hour, God will judge the sin of Babylon that has been piling up for centuries. His vengeance will come howling through the streets of Babylon." End of quote. So as I'm preaching faithfully through the Word of God, we have finished. 17 and 18. Did y'all believe it was in me to go from verses 9 through 24 in just a few minutes, you know? Some of y'all are saying, don't hurt yourself patting yourself on the back. I know, I, I, I feel like I've accomplished something here. But I, I really, in the midst of the dirge, in the midst of the funeral, 
in the midst of the devastation and the destruction, in the midst of all of these things, I I really don't want you to walk out of here gloomy, downtrodden. Listen, guys, if anybody should have hope, if anybody should have joy, if anybody should have peace, should it not be the child of God? Let me give you a little contrast, and I'm going to close with the following true story. True story. Gene McCombs was a pastor, and he was on a trip to New York City. When he got off of the airplane, he reached overhead to to get his belongings, and he went like this. He went, my word, what is that? And so he pulled it out, just hard, cold cash, hundreds and hundreds of dollars of cash. He goes, oh, my word. He put it down, and guess what he did? (laughs) He reached back up there and said, is there any more up there? And he pulled down hundreds and hundreds of dollars of cash, $20,000, $100 bills. He takes the money, puts it in his bag, goes straight to the pilot and says, Sir, I have stumbled across a small fortune of money. What what do I need to do with this? By the way, isn't that cool? What would you do? (laughs) Don't tell me the truth. What what would you do? You say, Well, Brother Danny, I I would just go put it here and put it here and I'd report the rest of it. No, he takes it. To the pilot, and the pilot says, you need to go to certain, certain office, go in through the terminal, take a right, take a left, you'll go to this office, knock on the door, they'll help you. So he did. He went to this agent, and he goes, sir, he says, I've stumbled across $20,000 cash, and uh, what, what, what am I supposed to do? And the guy says, well, sir, i got good news. If nobody comes and claims this cash, it's yours. You take it, you do with it, whatever you want to do with it. And about that time, here he comes. <laughs> this guy's disheveled hair, kind of, he's kind of frantic, and he walks in. And he goes, "Hey, he says, hey, I've, I've lost, I've lost, I've lost my money. My, I've lost my money." And the, and the agent said, "Sir, can you describe the money?" And to a T, he describes it perfectly. And so the pastor and the agent they turn and they say, "Sir, here's your money, and here's what this guy does." He takes the money, does this. He walks out the door. And that pastor, he goes, not even a thank you? I mean, not even a, hey, here's a couple of hundred for, for your time and your trouble. pastor said, oh, I got in my cab, and as I was going to my meeting, <laughs> he said, I got in the cab, and the devil got in the cab with me. <laughs> Have you ever heard the devil talk? I hear him all the time. Sir... You're a fool. You know that was drug money. You know this man was no good. That money could have been used for good and for your family. You are a fool to report it and give it back. He didn't even say, thank you. He said, the devil was working on me until, until I stopped. And I remembered what I have in Jesus Christ. How He has called me, saved me, bought me, keeps me, gives me joy day by day. And there is laid up for me a crown of glory in heaven. And I began to talk back to the devil. We had a conversation. 
And I spoke out loud, but look what I've got. And the cab driver (laughs) turned and looked. He said, sir, are you okay? He said, yes, sir, I am fine. It's just the devil and I are having a conversation. (laughs) Pastor McComb said, and for the remainder of the commute, the cab driver never took his eyes off the rearview mirror. He was watching me. Listen to me. Until he saw what he had in Christ. Can I just encourage you for a moment? That what you have in Jesus Christ far exceeds all the wealth all the rubies, all the prestige, all the diamonds, all the glory that this world could muster. Because I'm telling you, what shall it profit a man? What shall it profit a man or a woman if we gain the whole world and, and lose our souls? So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to encourage you for a moment. I want to I bless you. I want you to walk out of here being grateful to God and confident, but I also want you to be compassionately concerned for those who don't know the Lord. So with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, we're going to enter into a time of invitation, a time of prayer, a time of welcoming people to the altar to pray, to seek the face of God. Some of you are here today and you hear these these words preached, you hear these words read. And there's a stinging, there's there's a there's a bite to it. There's a conviction to it. And, and you, have, you have a couple of options. You can resist it, or you can say, God, I give in to it. And I ask you to forgive me, because you are convicting me of my sin, and I need forgiveness. I am, Lord, I look more like Babylon than Jerusalem. I, I look more like the things of the world, and I want the power and the glory, and I want, I want all the things that this world can give me so I can satisfy me. And if that's your case... I want you to ask God to forgive you of that. I would much rather you pray this prayer. I I wish you'd pray the prayer of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist denomination, when he said, I want to make all I can, literally, make all the money I can, save all the money I can, and give all that I can for the kingdom of God. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I invite you this very moment, if you don't know Christ, you don't have a relationship with Him, your bank account may be full, but your soul is empty, would you tell the Lord today, God, I'm sorry, you have blessed me immeasurably, you have blessed me with this world's goods, and I want to thank you, and I want to give my heart to you, I want to serve you, and I want to use what you've given me for the furtherance of the gospel. Would you pray that today? Would you give your heart to the Lord today? Others of you are here today, and And like me, you you really are trying to keep your nose clean. You really are trying to live for the Lord. You're trying to do what is right. And and sometimes you just feel absolutely outnumbered. You feel overwhelmed. You get the Lone Ranger syndrome that I'm the only one. But let me encourage you with this. No, you're not. If you just look around this morning, there are hundreds of people here today. You may have been on your business trip. You may have felt like you were the only one. But right here, right now, there are hundreds of people for you, not against you. We're encouraging you to be strong, to be faithful, because God wins. And all of those associated with Him, they will win. Father, thank You for victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. 
Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ. Thank you for the young and the old and all of us in between that are here today worshiping you, Lord, studying your word, exercising our minds, Lord, to know better what the word of God teaches. And so, Lord, I pray that you would honor us and bless us. But, Lord, most of all, I pray you'd receive honor and glory and blessing as we worship you today, God, thanking you for the victory, thanking you for the cross, thanking you that because of the cross of Christ, we are flawless. Lord, we are clean. We are forgiven, not on our own merit, but on the merit of the sacrificial death of the Son of God. Hallelujah. What a story. What a gospel. So, Lord, we give you praise today. We are, we are thrilled to be here. God, we are excited what you're doing in our life and in our city, and we want you to use us, God. Use us up, Lord. We don't want to burn out. We don't want to fade out. We don't want to rust out, but God, we want to max out for your glory. So use us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? God bless you. Let's sing. Let's sing to the Lord, Brother Terry. And we got folks here to pray with you and encourage you. I invite you to come.